Welcome to Pop Culture Detective Audio Files. I'm your host, Jonathan McIntosh, and today we'll be discussing the hit television series Ted Lasso and exploring how it subverts established conventions in sports comedies. Yeah, that's when sports and art combine, as far as I'm concerned. All right, fellas, let's run it again. Let's go. But before we get into that, I just want to give listeners a brief introduction to this new podcast series. Just like our pop culture detective video essays over on YouTube, you won't be hearing a lot of movie reviews, per se, as this podcast focuses less on whether a piece of media is good or bad, and is much more interested in looking critically at the sociological messages embedded in popular movies, TV shows, and video games. This means you can expect in-depth discussions covering a range of socio-political issues, including representations of race and masculinity. Now, in many ways, the audio series will be very much like our video essays on YouTube, only in a more casual format and with more voices contributing to the media analysis. So without further ado, today we'll be investigating the curious case of Ted Lasso. This is a bit of news from the other side of the Atlantic. AFC Richmond announced the hiring of their new manager, American football coach Ted Lasso. You're an American who's now in charge of a football club, despite possessing very little knowledge of the game. I know that AFC Richmond is going to give you everything they got, win or lose. All tie. Right, y'all do ties here. The series is a fish-out-of-water sports comedy starring Jason Sudeikis. But the show doesn't follow in the footsteps of many other popular sports comedies. So although movies like Caddyshack, Major League, The Waterboy, and Talladega Nights have come to sort of define the genre, Ted Lasso feels like a sharp departure from that classic sports comedy formula. Season 1 of Ted Lasso premiered on Apple TV in August 2020. The show began generating positive buzz almost immediately, with reviewers and critics jumping in to praise the show for being comforting and wholesome, and also for promoting niceness and kindness. But overemphasizing how nice the main character is can miss some of what makes the show truly special. So here to discuss why Ted Lasso is such a curious show, we are joined by two of our favorite media detectives, Felicia Lopez and Emron Siddiqui. Felicia Lopez is an assistant professor at the University of California, Merced, in the Department of Literatures, Languages, and Cultures, where her research covers a wide range of topics, including indigenous history, culture, language, and, of course, media. She is currently teaching a class called Latinx, Chicanx, and Indigenous Representations, where she analyzes some of the common tropes and archetypes in film, television, and literature. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Emron Siddiqui is a writer and filmmaker challenging systems of domination. Their writing on white supremacy, patriarchy, and popular media has been published by The Atlantic, Bitch Magazine, BuzzFeed, Liberty Hub, and others. They are currently the communications director at Black Star Projects, home of the Black Star Film Festival, and Scene Journal. Thank you. So nice to be here. Now, I just want to add that both Felicia and Emron have been script advisors on my pop culture detective video essays since the beginning of that project, and their help has been invaluable. It has made every video a thousand times better. So thank you both for that. Yeah, of course. And it, it's exciting to be here for your inaugural yeah. podcast. Such an honor. Thanks for inviting me. So we're here to discuss Ted Lasso. And for the purposes of this show, we'll be focusing on season one, even though season two premiered in July 2021. But we're going to save that for a future episode down the road. So the first thing I'd like to talk about is how you became interested in this show, uh, because it is not something that uh, I was, at least initially, 
interested in at all. You know, I heard that there was a sports comedy. Uh, I saw, I think I saw the trailer or some of the posters and I kind of went, yeah, I have no interest in this. And I think that, you know, the reason for me was that, you know, it seemed like, oh, I, I know what a sports comedy is. I know, I know that formula and I've seen enough of those, of those kind of things. So I think, you know, I went into it expecting a sort of Will Ferrell style sports comedy and it just isn't like that at all. And that was a pleasant surprise. Going into watching the show, I did think I would like it. I'm not a big fan of sports movies in general, but uh, that this came recommended by friends. Uh, uh, Jonathan as well recommended it to me. I knew that they would not stare me wrong. I knew that there must be something positive about it. And so, you know, I got to say I wasn't disappointed. Yeah. Uh, well, similarly, I mean, I think one of my friends told me about it, said I should watch it. I watched the trailer or I looked at the poster, actually, and I was like, Jason Sudeikis and that sports show. I don't want to watch that. I put it off for almost a year. And even then, I will say, I, I started watching it more with my like pop culture analysis brain, thinking like, okay, here's a show where I'm going to watch it because it's a bunch of men, you know, and, and I'm going to analyze it and maybe help Jonathan with a script, you know, someday, um, you know, and then I started watching it. And I, yeah, I got into it. You know, speaking of, of Jason Sudeikis, I have seen a lot of really, really bad comedies. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I, when I say that, I, I mean like a staggering number of terrible, terrible comedies. And so that's part of your job. That's what yeah, I feel like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's not my job. Yeah, it's it's definitely because of, of my job. You know, I've I made a whole series of of videos about the sexual assault of men played as comedy in Hollywood. And so I watched some of the worst comedies that have ever been made, I think. Um, and he's been in some of them. Uh, and so I, I was kind of, I was very skeptical because of that. I mean, he was in a movie called We Are the Millers, which was just awful. And, you know, a, a, a few others, I mean, like Horrible Bosses horrible and bosses. Horrible Bosses yeah. too. Yeah. I mean, just terrible, terrible representations. And, but and he, he was also, I know he can, he can do really good stuff. I mean, I saw him in a movie called Colossal. He does a fantastic job. He plays a real, I mean, a really kind of twisted character and he does it really, really, really well. But I, I somehow couldn't picture him as being a positive, optimistic character where that wasn't the joke, you know? So I was kind of expecting that he would be the butt of the joke. And one of the reasons that I, I was kind of apprehensive about that was because he had done a series of commercials. This, this character, Ted Lasso, uh, is from a series of commercials that, that he did way back in 2013, 2014 for NBC Sports. That's it, Skip. Skip like little girls. Go, not a, not a care of the world. I'm lucky to be doing this for a living. And we're going to play till there's a winner and there's or a loser. A What's that? A tie. Okay, till there's a winner, a loser, or a tie. You can tie. Will you explain to me how that was offside? No, I'm asking you. Seriously, explain offside to me. It made no sense. Premier League is on NBC and the NBC Sports. Yeah, so I, I was expecting what we kind of saw in those commercials, which is this, the Ted character is different. I mean, he is, he is the butt of the joke. He gets everything wrong. He, he's a, a stereotype of a Southern yokel, you know, and the show isn't at all like that. Yeah, I, you know, I wanted to say that uh, I did not see those commercials uh, until after I saw the first season. And I was struck that the jokes are almost exactly the same in the, just the first episode as they are in that 
in those commercials, but the delivery, the way they package them, the, the context of the jokes make it so he's not coming across as just kind of this self-involved guy who thinks he knows everything and it, he's just he's just right all the time, even though we know he's wrong, and in which case he would be the butt of that joke. But instead, he doesn't know what he's doing, but also he's curious. And, and so he's much more likable because he comes across as much more curious and open and honest about his shortcomings. That first commercial, at least, is is intended to get people to watch football. And I think that's an interesting difference because I think the show, it's a question whether the intended audience is necessarily people who know anything about sports, you know, or watch sports. And I think I'm, I've been curious about the, the number of people who have recommended the show to me who are not folks who necessarily watch sports. And so I think it's not meant to be like a sports show, which is kind of interesting when it is, a, of course, a sports show, you know, so. I think almost everybody who recommended it to me was like, yeah, I don't really care about sports, but you got to watch the show, um, <laughs> you know? So I, I think it does, it, it does, the show does get people to kind of maybe care about it a little bit more. Whereas the commercials were sort of mean spirited towards Ted, right? It's sort of the, you know, the idea is that this is American football coach knows nothing about soccer, goes over and starts teaching as if it was a football team. And he's just a buffoon. I mean, he, he, he's oblivious to what's going on. Um, and he, he is the, you know, he is like, like we said, he's the butt of the joke. Um, and it, I, I will say that the comedy, even though they do recycle a lot of the same lines, like, like Felicia said, it is delivered completely differently. Mm -hmm. Um, it's much more sincere yeah. in the show. Um, whereas the, you know, the, the commercials were were very much like other kinds of sports comedies that I, I've seen where it's sort of like this ironic humor to it. And a lot of it's very cynical. Uh, you don't get that with Ted Lasso, the show. Uh, it's, it's very sincere in its comedy, um, which I know probably puts some people off. And I know that some of the initial reviews for the show is like people going, well, what's going on? This isn't laugh out loud funny. This isn't like Saturday Night Live. Um, the comedy is much more understated. I mean, it's there. It's very funny, but it isn't going for that, for that sort of screwball comedy style. I mean, they love puns, right? They love wordplay. I mean, that kind of stuff makes me laugh out loud, but it's certainly not the kind of uh, slapstick that you could absolutely have. Yeah. I mean, I was struck by the character of Ted because it seems like, like my initial expectations, which were thankfully completely subverted, uh, you know, that character, we've seen that kind of character before in media, right? It's a, it's a very popular convention. He's happy. He's positive. He's overly optimistic. Um, and when we see characters like that, we think of like Ned Flanders, right? In, in the early episodes of The Simpsons or Kenneth on 30 Rock or uh, Stuart Smalley is his Smalley, name? Yeah, Stuart Smalley. Yeah, I'm good enough. Al Franken. That's Al Franken, a right. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, with these overly positive characters, we think we know what we're going to get. Um, and that's because I think they fall into, they sort of fall into two camps, usually. The, the sort of overly happy, positive attitude being, a, uh, on, on one hand, being a trick sort of a manipulative, sinister trick. Like they really have something dark underneath um, and we're just waiting for the other shoe to drop, right? So there's that uh, representation. And then on the other hand, there's the sort of the representation where it's a, where they're the butt of the joke, that they are naive and, and foolish and one-dimensional. They're sort of like a doormat, right? Um, and so you kind of expect one of those two things to happen because 
very rarely is there an adult male character who is empathetic and hopeful and uh, sincere, and that that isn't a joke. The comedy, it seemed like it was going gonna, was gonna to go there, and then it didn't, right? They, they decided to do something else, and it's very conscious. And I feel like even with a lot of the other characters, too, you sort of expect certain things to happen. And then in a lot of cases, although not all of them, and we'll, we'll talk about some of those, maybe some criticisms later, uh, the show subverts those expectations. I was just going to say, I, I, I completely agree, and I appreciate your comparison with Kenneth from 30 Rock, because I feel like it could have very easily fallen into that, uh, that kind of uh, stereotypical yokel character, um, which, you know, of course, is very offensive, right? This, this un- uneducated person from, from, the, from the country, usually, usually from the South, sometimes from the Midwest. Uh, and I, it felt like he could have been that character, right? Um, but he comes across as extremely intelligent. Uh, that you can be both intelligent and optimistic, I think, is really a, a very rare thing uh, to see. Sadly, not even just in media, but I think it's hard to be intelligent and aware in this world and and be optimistic. Uh, and so that he is those things, I think, makes him a very remarkable character. The show kind of that's kind of it's not necessarily it's trick, but kind of like what it's doing with many of the characters. It's like it, like with Roy. I think about how you know it's setting you up. Okay, this is going to be your typical guy who's angry, you know, on a football team. In some ways he is kind of, you know, but like, Mm -hmm. but the trajectory of Roy's storyline is it's meant to be like surprising when he's, is actually kind of soft and kind to people one-on-one. And they do that with Rebecca. They do it with, you know, many of the, the lead characters. And so I do think it seems like an intentional thing about the show which is it makes it interesting is it's kind of pulling you in with tropes and you think you know it's going to be this like fluffy show and then it just kind of as it goes tries to subvert those expectations yeah i I think that's interesting too is that he uh, that ted is not presented as a simpleton you know part of the conceit of the show is that as he when he gets to to england all of the other players, you know, they think he's the stereotype, right? They're, they're making fun of him. Roy's making fun of him. And Ted isn't presented as being oblivious to that. Um, he understands that they're mocking him, but he doesn't respond in kind. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't react to it. Um, and I feel like that also is a really deliberate choice by the writers. It's not that he's dumb or unaware. It's that he has made a choice on how he's going to um, respond to people who stereotype him or think less of him. Um, and, I, and I find that to be, to, to be a really, a, a, quite a brave choice to make. Um, and it is, it is noticeable. I mean, I, I think it's another very big difference from the, from the NBC sports commercials back in 2013, where, you know, he was oblivious. But in this one, he understands that he's the butt of the joke. Uh, to the other characters, but we as the audience are always presented uh, with the fact that those other players are wrong. I think that that's that's a clever writing trick, and it's really well done in this show. I was going to say, you know, like because I think we were talking about where the show um, differs from representations of similar characters, and I think another thing that happens with Ted is that it's not just that he you know knows that people are making fun of him and he's okay with that, because even that. There are some other characters like that, you know, where they just don't care. That's what makes them cool or whatever. But the difference, I think, is that 
then eventually the show gets around to why maybe like what is he dealing with you know that makes him maybe want the world to be better or and and you kind of get into you know the divorce and and kind of where he's coming from um and having to move to this this new country and be so far away from his family so I think that also just makes it a little bit more interesting because it's like um, it's not just like he's a superhero. It's like he's there's a reason why he's he can show up and be so or he's trying to be so nice, you know. Yeah, I mean, and if you look at a lot of the writing, the sort of critical writing about the show, the reviews of the show, they all kind of mention you know in the headline uh, his kindness, his niceness, his undying optimism, um, but not a lot of them get at what I think. Emron is talking about here, and that is that there's actually quite a bit of depth to Ted. You know, he has this sort of happy, positive persona, but the show is very quick, even in the first episode, to show us that there's more going on here. Um, his sort of underlying sadness about the failure of his relationship is there. I mean, from episode one, um, he's on those calls with his with his soon-to-be ex-wife, and he says he's he's kind of catching himself saying, I love you when he, and then he kind of catches himself and he says, no, no, I mean, I miss you. You know, he, throughout the show, he gets angry uh, about Jamie Tart being uh, sent back. He is, he is sad. He has panic attack. I mean, there's a lot of layers here that uh, emotional layers, a much uh, sort of a, a full character that I think gets a little bit lost in conversations about just how kind and nice he is, which, which is important. I mean, that's true, but there are, there's, there's levels here. Guys have underestimated me my entire life. And for years, I never understood why. It used to really bother me. But then one day, I was driving my little boy to school, and I saw this quote by Walt Whitman. It was painted on the wall there. It said, be curious, not judgmental. I like that. And all of a sudden, it hits me. All them fellas that used to belittle me, not a single one of them were curious. And I realized that they're underestimating me. <sighs> Who I was had nothing to do with it. <laughs> uh, you know, I love that scene. I think it's just a classic scene. Right before they started playing the dart game, Rebecca leaning in and saying, what are you doing? And his reaction was, I think they call it white knighting. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> but I'm just going, I'm just following my gut here. Right. And so, you know, uh, you know, I, I appreciate that he knows what he's doing, right? He, he's trying to save her. He's trying to save the day. Um, and he acknowledges that, you know, maybe, maybe he's out of line in doing it. Um, but also, you know, it feels like the right thing to do for her at that time. I'm thinking about like in other sports films, some of the ones you mentioned before, or like something like, dodgeball or something like usually if there's like there's a woman in the movie it, it's the love interest of the the white guy who's it's about <laughs> and so he the way he's going to win her over is by doing some sports thing and, or, or or some aggressive challenge to the man who hurt her and so i think the way that the show is slightly different is the way that ted ultimately actually you know wins rebecca over fully or would they become really good friends, not because necessarily the darts moment, which is important, but it's because Ted is affirming Rebecca's perspective and just saying like, that's real. And I just thought that that's, you know, in the context of these sports shows is also different. Yeah. I mean, he, he's playing darts. I mean, you know, they're, they're, they're showing the dartboard and the, and the, uh, you know, them throwing the darts and so on. So it is kind of this sort of sports thing, but the real weight of that scene, uh, like Emron was saying is what Ted is saying, 
And he has this whole speech about, about how the people who make fun of him his whole life, they were just sort of assuming they knew who he was, which is very much what the show is about, right? It's about us sort of assuming, oh, we know what this kind of character is like. But in fact, there's much, there's many more layers to it. And so he says, you know, they may have asked questions if they were curious. Questions like, have you played a lot of darts, Ted? <laughs> right? And he throws one and hits the bullseye or something, you know? So it's that he wins the day by, by being, being right about Rupert and being, and sort of explaining almost like the premise of the whole show. And it comes back to what we were talking about earlier about Ted's character not being the butt of the jokes is that he is this character who is not judgmental. He is curious, just like that quote that he, he shares during the dark game. Um, and that's really, that's really why we're on his side. So I want to circle back and talk about the relationships on the show a little bit more. I think we can get a little bit more into Ted and his ex-wife. I feel like that relationship adds an enormous amount of depth to Ted's character, um, but it also very specifically subverts what we kind of expect from rom-coms in particular. You know, we, this idea that there's a guy who just won't give up on, on his love interest and he's going to just he's keep going. He's got the boombox over his head. He's, 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 he's <laughs> Lloyd Dobler with the, with the boombox and say anything. Yeah. I mean, this, this, romantic gestures, this sort of dogged determination, never giving up. Um, that is a staple for almost all romantic comedies with a couple exceptions. And so there's a, there's a moment where, you know, Ted realizes that his continued efforts to fix the relationship is a problem and that he needs to let go. And that moment where Ted decides to let go I thought was, was, was really powerful because it, again, it sort of flies in the face of what we expect for these sort of romantic comedy relationships. What are you saying? Shell, there's something I could do or something I could say that would make you be happy. Just being with me, I'd do it. I'd do it in a nanosecond. But I ain't got no control over any of that. So speaking of characters who have an unexpected uh, plot twist associated with them, uh, we can talk about Rebecca. Uh, who is a character that we have seen before, at least we, we think, uh, in many pieces of media, right? She sort of, at least initially, comes across as the sort of classic scorned woman out for revenge, you know, ice queen cliche. Uh, but like everything else in the show, there's more going on under the surface. Uh, you know, I just want to pick up on you calling her a, an ice queen, you know, this ice queen kind of uh, kind of trope. Uh, and I think it's funny that you say that because I think she definitely was presented in that way. She's kind of, she's cold, she's harsh, but then they have her do karaoke of Let It Go. The snow glows white on the mountain tonight, not a footprint to be seen. Kingdom of isolation, and it looks like I'm the queen. Coming from the <laughs> Disney movie Frozen with this very unconventional kind of ice queen character, who is not a villain. And we see the same kind of thing happening here where we want to hate her. We see from the first episode that she is, she's conniving. Like she is trying to destroy Ted. She's trying to destroy the team. But then we get to see that transformation. We see that she's been severely emotionally affected and traumatized by her relationship with her ex-husband. Uh, and it's driving her to do these horrible things. And so we get to see her journey of self-discovery, of, of regret, 
Uh, and then she experiences that forgiveness from Ted, which again is a, like a, an extremely powerful scene where, you know, you tell someone that you, I've been trying to destroy you for the last couple months and they say, I forgive you. I mean, this is not the kind of scene that we expect from like a sports comedy <laughs> show, um, but it's extremely powerful. And that forgiveness gives her this this freedom to kind of become a completely different character. Just also thinking about how they, you know, her storyline, though it starts off as being so connected to um, this man, you know, her ex-husband. And that's also kind of a very common, like, way of framing a, a, a character um, who's a woman, you know, so like... It's, you think it's going to be all about this relationship. I think by the end of the show, it's not really about that guy, you know? And I also think it's not like it's about her relationship with Ted either. And one of the things I'm, you know, hopeful that they don't do in season two is make it into some sort of romance. What's special about that relationship between the two of them is that they're supportive of each other. Or And Ted is especially, you know, supportive of Rebecca and their friends, you know, and and her her journey is not it's not necessarily because of Ted, but or any man. You know, it's it's interesting to see that that really that friendship helps her as well as the friendship with Keeley. And in the end, you know, it becomes her own journey. Um, there's a scene in in the bathroom during the the gala episode where they're discussing their relationships, and Rebecca says to Keeley, uh, "Accountability is important, right?" And then at the end of that episode. Uh, Keely says that same thing to Jamie when she breaks up with him. She's like, look, Jamie, accountability is important. And, and it's, it's very direct. I mean, you, you can see how she's, she's sort of been inspired to, um, to take control of her relationship and, and, and her place in it through this relationship with Re- Rebecca, who is at this time sort of a semi-villain on the show, although they're doing a lot to, 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 to humanize her too. Um, but you can definitely see this growth and it's, it's very clear. Yeah. You know, I always appreciate shows that present women as friends rather than competition for men. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I hate to say it, but it, that, that kind of representation is extremely common. So we have two very strong women who are experiencing these, these moments of growth and learning uh, and, and not defining. And I think Ted actually says it at one point. You know, a woman who is not defined by her relationships, right? Uh, and so, you know, I think that's absolutely right in the case of, of Keely and Rebecca both, is that they're not being defined by their relationships. And again, I think that's extremely unusual for women being represented in things like sports movies, where they're usually just a girlfriend or a love interest or just kind of like this side character, this a small character. One of the, I think, uh, interesting things the show does and. It's almost like self-aware that it's somewhat of like a fantasy, you know, in, in the sense that like it's it's imagining a locker room where these women walk in and, you know, I'm not saying that this is impossible, but, uh, you know, that there's some comments, but for the most part, there is not a lot of, you know, these men are like just cool with this, you know, these women just being around them. And I think that that is interesting of the show because because you could make a similar show about issues for instance a comedy and have those characters primarily have to respond to sexism and misogyny now i do say i will say we can come back to this there's a little bit of like girl boss feminism stuff happening but uh you know we can come back to that 
Uh, so let's talk about Higgins real quick. Le- Les- Leslie here, Higgins, right? Is that what, yeah, what we've deduced? His name is Leslie. We, we find that out at some point. Yeah. So he is presented as this sort of meek doormat character, right? Mm-hmm. And it seems like, I mean, uh, for I think a little bit longer than most of the other characters, he seems to be kind of one note, right? We kind of know what to expect. He's constantly being made fun of. You know, he's sort of effeminate and not very dominant. And that's sort of the joke. But like everything else in the show, again, uh, they humanize him uh, and they make him sympathetic. And and they do it in a way that doesn't change his personality. You know, he he gets to be uh, himself. He's not interested in dominance, and yet he still gets to be part of the part of the crew, right? He still builds friendships with uh, with the coach and with Ted and with Nate, right? And he's sort of part of that inner circle, and we're sort of rooting for him when it could have been very easy to make him a throwaway joke in basically every scene he's in, almost. But they manage to humanize him too, which I which I appreciate. One of the scenes I really like is is when. Uh, when Rebecca finally just confronts him uh, as to why, because Rebecca has been torturing him as well as trying to destroy Ted and the entire team um, because she feels like, uh, like Higgins was an accomplice to her ex-husband and she confronts him and he owns up to it. And he said, you're right. I should have, I should have put my foot down. I should have done something. I should have said something. Uh, and, you know, I, I think it's, a, again, one of these really powerful moments where you see people, uh, especially men, being accountable, right? Being accountable matters, right? It's important. In that same scene where he, you know, he, he owns up to it and says he's, he's truly sorry for being an accomplice. Um, that's the same scene where he tells Rebecca, you can't keep doing this. You can't keep doing this to me. You can't keep doing this to Ted. You can't be doing this to the team. And so he sort of has this very sort of assertive moment where he walks away. He says, I quit. And I thought that, that, was, that was nice. It sort of gave him this, an assertive moment to stand up for what's right. And he does it in a, not necessarily a quiet way, but there's a lot of dignity and respect there because he also admits his mistakes in that process. Should have been braver. And I'm, I'm sorry for that. Um, but I, I'm saying this to you now. Stop it. Or what? I quit. I liked that scene a lot. And I think we can maybe contrast that scene, that sort of like a man gaining confidence scene, uh, with some of the ways that confidence is portrayed or confidence building is portrayed with the other characters, like, for instance, Nate. Ah, yes. <laughs> uh, Take it away, Amron. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Nate, Nate is such a interesting and... <laughs> interesting that's a euphemism yeah. <laughs> you know his his journey is not as, as exciting as these other characters because you know in the end the way nate who starts off as similarly i guess you know you could say meek or um not confident the way nate gets you know shows that he's grown in the end is he's written this speech for ted um to give to the players to hype them up before a big game and then Ted says, no, you're going to give the speech. And that moment, like, you think, okay, that's kind of nice. You know, it's like, you know, Nate's finally going to have, and Ted's giving him an opportunity to have some leadership and self-confidence and, and to give this speech. But then when the speech is actually read, it's like, you know, entirely bringing people down on the team. Let's focus up. All yours, Nate. Okay. 
Isaac, mm. I've noticed of late that you've been playing like a big dumb pussy. Misogynistic. Like the joke is that he's being crass and like you didn't expect that. And I think, you know, embedded in that joke is why wouldn't we expect that from this character? And I think that's where the show often doesn't get into that deeper level of, of like, and in this case, race. And, and there's other examples of that as well. But I think part of the joke with Nate is that it works because he's a character of color and particularly South Asian. And so like, not only is, is his, you know, outburst all about aggression and, and bringing people down and, and really dominating them, that's how he shows that he's confident. It's also playing into a trope around South Asian men and Asian men in general as being, you know, they're supposed to be quiet and meek. So, and there's, and in this show doesn't really give get us ever get beyond that. And so it, it, I don't think it earns that joke. So like we kind of just leave that at least season one. And I do think they might address it in season two. We'll see. But in season one, at least they kind of leave Nate as that, you know, um, and then he's just kind of, now he's confident because he can, you know, tell jokes like the other men. Yeah, I have to say that that when that happened, it really took me back because I was I was not expecting the show to sort of double down on exactly the kind of thing that I would expect it to subvert. And so here you have Nate giving this pregame talk. It's going to be his moment of, of finally, you know, gaining confidence. He's sort of not believed in himself this whole time. And how does that how are they going to represent that confidence? And like you're saying, the way that they do that is they have him, you know, being a jerk to all the other guys and and putting them down and putting them down in very specifically gendered language often, um, which, I, you know, is one of the only times that the show does that. And since it's Nate, we're supposed to like this. Like, we're not supposed to think that anything he's doing here is, is wrong or over the line or not the right direction. We're supposed to think this is his, like, crescendo you know um that and, and part of that speech he's talking to roy and i think this might get a little bit into in, in, into some of the criticisms of roy's character too because his whole his whole put down of roy is that roy isn't angry enough that he used to be super angry right i think the, the line is he used to be you know, uh, you used to run like you were angry at the grass. All right. You used right. to run like you were angry at the grass. After your wife or something like that. I don't yeah. know. It's, it's couched in the super gendered sexist kind of language. And, and it's this confrontation between these two guys. And, and, you know, the response from Roy is to, you know, flip over a bench and scream and get angry. And then that is presented as also super positive. Right. So the both of these characters have this moment where anger or sort of assertiveness in a, in a very sort of dominant way is presented as positive. But your speed and your smarts were never what made you who you are. It's your anger. That's your superpower. That's what made you one of the best midfielders in the history of this league. And this is part of a pattern that we see in a lot of sports movies, but a lot of movies in general, is that for men, anger is presented as sort of a synonym for passion and that it's positive and that men have to sort of find their anger because that means they're passionate and it's just good. You know, there's, there's very little uh, critique of that. And it seemed like Roy's character, he had to learn maybe not to be so angry, maybe not lash out so much, but the lesson seems to be that like lashing out is good. You just have to lash out 
at the ball and the grass as opposed to other people. But I find that a, a very troubling message. It is. And, you know, I feel like the show is really, they're really, again, trying to have it both ways, right? Because at the very, uh, closer to the beginning of the, of the season, Keely kind of mocks Roy and says, mm, my name's Roy Kent and I'm angry all the time. <laughs> I get paid to play a game. Uh, and, you know, and he concedes like, wow, that was actually a pretty good impersonation of me. And so, you know, it, it is kind of, it is kind of poking at this, this idea like, why are you so angry? You're, you have a good, you have a good life. Um, and yet it's still encouraging it, right? It's still saying that is how you show that you are virile, that you are strong, that you are capable at this game that is only for the strongest and the mightiest of man's men. <laughs> yeah. And, and that it's necessary to be good at your job. I, well, I think that's where the show we were, we, we were talking earlier about how it's not a sports show at in many ways, I think it kind of gets caught there at the end. To, it's like a traditional way you you would uh, bring the, a sports show or movie to its end is that the characters, you know, get you know revved up and then take, put it all out on the field and then they they're victorious and it does you know subvert some of that in the end. But I think with these in these moments, it gets kind of like caught between the two poles of like you know if it lets go of that and then Roy actually learns to not be angry and that's the lesson then that the writers have to find a different way of getting him his motivation back to play soccer or football so and i think that they are to play well and and i think that that's where it get there are some moments where, where they just kind of get stuck and maybe fall into um the very tropes that they're <laughs> critiquing yeah yeah so there's a, there's a character named isaac uh, who doesn't get a lot of screen time uh, except he has this one moment where he gets super angry at the TV that they're all watching in the training room and he throws a chair and he just breaks the TV, right? This giant flat screen TV. And it, it's sort of a jarring moment, but it's again presented as a, as a good thing because it's the team finally getting their motivation back. And then that moment sort of transitions into him getting to be the new captain of the team. And, you know, Roy hands him the, the captain band and he says, never stop breaking TVs. <laughs> and that's the show sort of tripling down on this sort of anger, you know, men's anger is good uh, when it comes to sports or, 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 or their profession. While anger isn't necessarily a bad emotion, like I don't want to say that mm -hmm. anger is always bad. It's, it certainly isn't. It's a human emotion. It's natural. It's normal. And it can be uh, funneled into constructive pursuits where you can, you know, if you're angry at injustice, you can change the world. But I don't think that it's presented that way here. It's presented as almost like a, a positive personality trait that is necessary for men to achieve anything, which, which I found disturbing and, and surprising for this show because I thought they wouldn't go there. So we're talking about some of the criticisms of the show. Uh, and so I want to talk about Sam and Danny a little bit. Coach, is it, is it okay if I, if I don't keep this? Uh, I don't really have the same fondness for the American military that you do. Oh, sure. Right. Imperialism. Imperialism. Right, yeah. Imperialism. Thank you, Coach. The show tends to focus very heavily on the white characters and their, their transformational arc. I mean, with the exception of, of maybe Nate, uh, everybody else uh, who is, the, who is on, on the screen the most is white. That may be changing in season two. I hope it does. But these two characters, especially Sam and Danny, are criminally underused because I think they have some of the best lines 
you know, and some of the best personas mm-hmm. in the whole show. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, uh, I, I love, I love Sam's character and I really have high hope for his character because at least what we know about him from season one is that he, uh, loves Harry Potter, but is also extremely critical of American imperialism. <laughs> And I was actually a little concerned because here was Ted giving out army men and little army men to everyone. And I was like, oh my goodness. And so that we have Sam saying like, yeah, I'm not going to keep this. This is, <laughs> this has different associations for me than it does for you. Uh, and, you know, and then, and then Ted was willing to accept that criticism. And I was like, yeah, well, that makes sense. Yeah. Imperialism. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's bad. Yeah. I mean, I think that moment with the imperialism is a good example of another place where I think the show tries to have it both ways you know because because for me it's like okay um, well for sure one of the things lacking in in sam's overall experience is you know talking about race in the sense of like it's not just that jamie's mean to him for instance in in the locker room you know and it's not just that he's uh, i think his family's nigerian um and that he's coming from a different place it's that he's in a locker room with white people too like you know what i mean like he's in a locker room where the just like we're watching a show where most of the people are white, what we don't get from Sam's experience is what is it like to play on this team? Same one with Nate and, and Danny Rojas. And the other part of that, that that really stands out to me is like, it's also a matter of how they depict the white characters because the white characters don't, aren't that racist. They don't really do things that are racist. And that's again, part of this fantasy. So there's elements of the fantasy that feel great. Like let's say Ted, wanting the world to be a better place. But then there's elements of the fantasy that are like, okay, but who does the fantasy serve? You know, and in this, this is an example where someone like Sam in the English Premier League, you know, as a black African player with all that history, it, it deserves more than just a joke about imperialism. You know, it's like that locker room would be a hostile place. And even if it's not, then it's a beautiful thing, but then it has to be, acknowledged yeah yeah and i think that's yeah. same with danny too you know he just kind of comes in he's like happy-go-lucky and you know english is just clearly his second language and and they that's kind of a joke at, at times but it's like would that be so easy for him you know would football be life like be so easy and i feel like they do hint at it but again it's these are moments where you can tell the perspective of the show is is predominantly white you know, this thing where sometimes diversity or representation has its limits, because it's like, even if you have characters of, of color, women on screen, like, do you know what to do next? You know, And I think, uh, yeah, it struggles a bit there. Right. I, I do have to say I was relieved when Danny Rojas ended up on the show uh, because, you know, he wasn't there the first half of the season. Um, and I was I was concerned because, you know, I'm not a huge huge football fan, not by any stretch. Um, but I do go through, uh, some time of having to wake up super early whenever the world cup is going on. And so I'm familiar enough to know that there would be no way that they would have a league like that where they didn't have some, uh, Latinx people, uh, playing on the team. And so that was a good idea to bring, uh, the character of Danny Rojas on, on, uh, to the show. Um, I'm going to withhold judgment too much until I watch season two. Uh, but it is, his character does seem very one dimensional, does seem, uh, like Ted, very optimistic, but in a very shallow way. It's always weird. Cause it's like, when you see characters of color in a show, that's 
um, predominantly white. Sometimes you almost wish that they wouldn't even try because it's almost like y- you know why they're here. You know what I mean? Like it's 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 like in neon lights, like this is the black character, you know. And, and so now there's so much pressure put on that character and their storyline. And as they've shown in the trailers for season two, is they are going to have more characters of color. I think that's the only way you can really, you know, deal with this is have multiple perspectives. Um, yeah, and I imagine in season two they will address it. it to Emron's point, there, there is this tendency to try to sort of envision what, what, what would football be like if it wasn't super racist without acknowledging that that as, isn't actually how it is. And, and we know that it isn't how it is because in England, uh, just recently, there was a, a horrible racist uproar over some of the some of the black players on one of the teams and you know it it was such a big deal and so horrific in terms of the the sort of casual and and overt racism towards these these players that jason sudeikis actually wore a t-shirt with those players names on it to the premiere of season two so uh, at some point there's got to be a reckoning about this because it's a real serious problem in sports in general, but especially in the Premier League. And so hopefully season two, uh, the show can start acknowledging some of these things. This here is my letter of resignation. I wrote it on the back of a takeout menu, but it's in an envelope and I signed it. So, you know, it's legit. Um, You listen to me, Coach Lasso. You are not going anywhere because we have work to do. Next season. Okay. All right then. You know, a lot of my response to the show is is based on what I'm expecting from other shows. And I've seen so many of these of these comedies that when a show doesn't do something or subvert something in a specific way, especially when it comes to straight men, I'm just like I sit up and go, "What? What? What? What just what just happened? I haven't seen that before." <laughs> you know, I mean, in real life, I have, but not not in media. So, I certainly they they can do things better. Uh, but for me, it's it's quite jarring and 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 nice to see uh, something different. Yeah, I, I'm just thinking of uh, that the the scene with Roy and Ted, and you know Ted had bought books for all of the all of the players. You know, Roy is the only person we see. I think he's the only person we see actively reading that book from scene to scene. Um, a Wrinkle in Time, which is is a great book. Um, and you know, I, I think uh, they're talking about it, and Trent Krim of the Independent chimes in and says oh it's a it's a book about this little girl who uh has to take on this leadership role and uh and rory asks am i supposed to be the little girl to which ted says i'd like you to be and you know it's this really kind of like a sweet moment where you can see that he he bought him this book he's trying to encourage him to take on this this uh this extra role Uh, it's very kind of heartfelt and in this situation He's saying, I'd like you to be a ball player like this little girl. And it's so ironic, right? Where, where we live in a society where like, oh, you play like a girl is just this horrible insult. But he's saying, you know, I'd like you, I'd like you to be the little girl. Uh, if you could, that would be wonderful. Um, so very sincere. And, you know, I love these moments where we see these male characters uh, engaging with one another in a sensitive honest, heartfelt way that's not knocking women and girls, <laughs> that's, that's uh, vulnerable with one another as well. You know, I, I like that Wrinkle in Time scene too, where, where he says, I'd like you to be the, the little girl. And I especially like it because it's, it's a direct 
contrast to that original, you know, 2013 NBC Sports um, commercial that they did with the Ted Lasso character, because in that he is making gendered comments to put down the players. Mm-hmm. The show does not do that. And like Felicia said, it, it actually reaffirms that girls are, are a good thing to be and that maybe these these adult men, these professional footballers could aspire to be uh, like these little girls, which which is is, I think, a, a deliberate choice. And again, something I have not seen happen in a show like this. Yeah, and I think that is such um, an important point. And it makes me think about like one of the things that I wanted to just put out there, and this is like more about how the show has been received than the show itself. And I find that like often the way that we position the show is that like what makes it substantial or unique is that men don't get these representations of how to be, how to be kind, how to be nice, how to be emotional. And there's a, there's some just challenge I want to put to that, which is that like the idea that men have to follow men is a limited conception. And that in and of itself does not challenge, you know, hypermasculine patriarchy. It actually reaffirms it. In some ways, the show is not telling us to do that because that, that example is one where the show is saying, Maybe you don't have to follow a man. And I think in this in the second season, it, it, it might lean into that more. But I think I want to push back on Ted Lasso being the show to watch if you're trying to learn how to be better as a human, because there are other shows which you could have been following. And I think if it takes a white man to be the one to tell you, right. then there right. is something there. And I don't think it's the show's fault. Again, I think it's more about how we talk about media and praise things as like, that's the show that challenged toxic masculinity, not the one with the women in it or the one with people of other genders, of all genders. That's what I can't quite unpack about the show. There's something about it, which the fact that it is men, the fact that it is sports, it's both why it's so good, but also why people are okay with saying it's good. You know what I mean? Like if you take the same show and you put black and brown women, trans folks in the same environment obviously they couldn't be but let's say there was that fantasy show would people be like hey what a challenge to toxic masculinity (laughs) like i don't think they would and i think there's something there's a problem in that what you just said reminds me of the fallacy that men or boys need strong father figures in order to learn how to be good men right that that's something that is, is the conventional wisdom around masculinity and has been for a long time i think it's completely wrong because uh, like you're saying, it assumes that, that boys can only learn how to be men from men. You know, they can only learn how to be a good person. They can only learn, they can only learn how to be uh, their, their true selves by, by emulating and learning from adult men. You know, obviously that's ridiculous. It puts down and dismisses uh, single moms, dismisses community leadership and the, all the other places that young boys learn. You know, young boys learn from everywhere. And, you know, there's no reason why men and boys have to, you know, like what you're saying, see a man or a, specifically a white man playing sports in order to learn how to be uh, a better person. You could learn that from, from anywhere. And, and I think that's a, that's a critical point. All these things point to like, you know, can the show also grapple with beyond the individual experience, like the systems of oppression and the way they intersect. And I do think there's a great opportunity. That's just what I wanted to say is that like, I don't think it's impossible. I think when you choose an institution like the English Premier League or the institution of sports or however you want to say it, 
that's a good metaphor. And there's a possibility there to show how change can occur and it can, the institution can change. So what I'm interested in seeing is can Ted's um, culture that he's establishing at this team, can it spread? Can it change uh, other teams? Can it impact the way that this organization or these organizations run? We'll see. I, I have my doubts because, you know, that would be that would be a big show. Uh, that's what I'm curious about. And I'm interested and hopeful, you know, because like I said, I think soccer, sports, they can be it can be a great metaphor to show that. Yeah. I mean, th- there is a question. Is this going to be just about men changing who they are? Is that is that it? Is it just going to be like, I can be a better person as an individual? Um, is that what the show is inspiring? Which is not a bad thing, you know, but can we have something that's that's more structural as well? Is the show going to talk about like, you know, the Premier League or, or soccer, football as an institution and the myriad of problems and corruption and, and replications of patriarchy within those those systems? I, I don't know if it is going to, but I'm also hopeful that it that it might. It has the opportunity at least to do that. You two are both so hopeful. I love it. Uh, and so, you know, I'm going to say my concluding thoughts on this are uh, probably uh, my general thoughts on media in general. General thoughts on media in general? Uh-oh, I have that that problem that Ted had where <laughs> the word's not meaning anything anymore. Um, so, uh, you know, media, I think, is, is extremely powerful and it can affect uh, the way people think about things. Um, but it's not all encompassing. It's not going to change everything and, uh, and really to create systemic change, broader social change. We need to have people. We need to mobilize. We need to push back against these systems. Uh, so can it change things? Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I think it'd be, it'd be another straw, right? We need to just need to keep piling on those straws until we can break the back of these of these larger social systems that are in place right now. Uh, so am I hopeful? Uh, I think not as much as you all, but <laughs> but I got to have a little bit of hope, right? It's the, it's the lasso way. Yeah, I mean, uh, that might have been an unfair question because I feel like it's uh, it might be too much to ask for one show because it really doesn't have yeah. it, it shouldn't be one show. It should be yeah. uh, it should be many shows. It should be a culture of entertainment. And, and we can't put everything on on one show, but we, we get so few uh, shows that you walk away from feeling good. I mean, when I'm watching this show, you know, I, I have my critical hat on uh, when I'm watching it, but I also feel good. I'm like, oh, this sort of reaffirms hope and it reaffirms a lot of these really positive things that that I don't see very often uh, in media. And so, you know, it's, it's sort of like, a, you know, we're, we're just getting crumbs here, right? Uh, and so when we do get a good crumb, you know, we kind of want to, <laughs> we kind of want to hold on to it and celebrate it a little bit. Um, but, you know, it doesn't mean that something is uh, not deserving of, of examination and, and, and criticism. So uh, I wanted to thank both of you for being here and sharing your thoughts uh, with us about the show. Uh, I really appreciate it. Yeah, again, I just want to thank you, Jonathan, and thank you, Amron. It's been a pleasure talking to you both. And hopefully uh, other people will enjoy hearing our conversation <laughs> as well. Yeah, so fun. I could do this all night, you know. <laughs> I mean, we can go for another two hours if you really want to. Um, but yeah, so thank you both for, for joining us. And I'm sure we'll have both of you back on the podcast very soon to get more of your amazing insights. And with that, we're going to bring this case to a close. 
It's important to note that all of our pop culture detective projects, including this one, are 100% funded by listeners or viewers. If you enjoy the kind of in-depth media criticism that you just heard, please consider supporting this project and all of our work over on Patreon. Just go over to patreon.com popdetective to help us out. We have a whole bunch of other audiophile investigations in the works, including an episode examining the politics and underlying ideology of the MCU, if there is such a thing, an episode trying to piece together what the hell happened with the rise of Skywalker, and an episode analyzing Hollywood's representation, or rather misrepresentation, of black radicals on both the big and small screen. So make sure to hit the follow button wherever you get your podcasts from to make sure you don't miss out on those future episodes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next time.